All right, go ahead and open up to 2 John. Um, just praying we make it through this, that my voice will hold out. Who knows? That might be a good sign that you might get out of here early. It might be a bad sign that we just don't get out of here until like forever. So um, you never know these days, right? Uh, but this morning we are going into 2 John. And for the last two months, going through 1 John, we basically have seen that 1 John is really an address, a letter to more individuals, right? It's to the individuals of the church, (coughs) encouraging them to um, just hold fast to this truth that Jesus is God. Remember, there was this false teaching going around that um, Jesus was not actually the Christ, that he had simply inherited the spirit of Christ and um, that before he died, the, the spirit of Christ left him. Um, and, and we looked at how many ways that was wrong, right? And so throughout First John, you just see um, John the Apostle encouraging them to hold fast to the truth of Christ, to, um, to rest in the truth of the love of God, um, and then to... in return love like we have been loved and to be obedient in our love, um, that our lives should simply reflect the love of God. Now we get into Second John, and you'll notice how short Second and Third John are. They're, they're actually the shortest um, in terms of wording um, books of the Bible. And Second John is really kind of precise and to the point. But what he's doing here is he's writing not as much to the individuals anymore, but he's turned his attention to the church as a whole um, and, and really um, encouraging them and, and instructing them. So with that, the main idea for Second John, we'll cover the whole um, book today. Second John, the main idea is this, The followers of Jesus obediently walk in love and hold fast to the truth of the gospel so that they may not be deceived by false teaching. If you will, let's stand. I'm going to read 2 John and then I'm going to pray for us. Um, And during that time, if you would pray also uh, for me and we will um, break down 2 John together. 2 John, starting in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading of your word. God, that you would be with us during this time as we work through this text. God, that you would both encourage our hearts with the good news that Jesus is truly God and encourage us then to reflect your glory in every moment of our lives, in every way. And also challenge us with the reality that we have been set apart to live by your grace and for your glory alone. Father, we ask that you would do now what is only that you can do. And that is speak through the working of your Holy Spirit that is living within your children the truths that we need to hear. And that we would magnify the Lord through the reading and the teaching of your word. Father, I ask that you would speak through me. that you would touch my voice and that you would allow us to hear the truths that we need to hear this morning. All to the praise and glory of our King. In Jesus' most glorious name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So again, the main idea is this. That followers of Jesus obediently walk in love and hold fast to the truth of the gospel, so that they may not be deceived by false teaching. Right off the bat in this letter, um, considered one of the general epistles, starts, The elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, it never specifically says that this is John the Apostle writing, but there's tons of evidence that leans to his authorship. The elder is simply a term for pastor. John, as one of the apostles, is one of the pastors of these area churches. He is one of the primary father figures. And so it's the elder to the elect lady. It's John the pastor. He's writing to them. He's writing to encourage them, just as we saw in 1 John. And it says he's writing to the elect lady. Now, There's a lot of speculation on what this is, but when you really begin to break it down um, in the Greek and in the commentaries, what you really find is a, a pretty cohesive belief that the elect lady is actually the church, that the pastor is writing to 
the church. Now, a lot of people want to bucket that, but it actually makes plenty of sense, especially in the original languages, because church, the word for church in the Greek is actually um, in the feminine, feminine um, tense, and it's not unusual because we see several times throughout Scripture where the church is referred to as a woman or as a lady or the bride of Christ. So it makes a lot of sense that John the Apostle, as a pastor and an elder of the church, would be writing in this form. He's not the only one to have done so. And so to try to say it's something else is actually um, a little odd. It actually makes a lot of sense that he would write in this terminology. So the pastor writing to the church and her children then would be the church members, those who are making up the church, those who have um, associated themselves as a body, a unified body, and have submitted to the Lordship of Christ. They have um, surrendered to salvation through Christ alone. And so we see this letter being written to this church and the members of it. It's a church that he says, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth is the truth of the gospel. This truth that John had already written about in 1 John, that Jesus was the Christ. He was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. He wasn't simply a man who had inherited the Spirit of Christ, but he actually is the Christ. And their faith hinges on that very truth. So if you remember several times as we were working through 1 John, we made reference that if we miss our understanding of who Christ is, we miss everything. Christ being the God-man is foundational for the Christian faith. Our redemption hinges on that belief. Our salvation is dependent solely upon Christ being our Savior. And if Jesus, who actually died the death in our place for our sins, is not truly the Christ, then his death is of no effect. And we know time and time again in Scripture that we see that salvation cannot be attained by works of our own doing. So if Christ, as our substitute, is not um, giving himself in our place for our sins through the death of Jesus, then again, that death has no meaning. So our belief in Christ, Jesus being the Christ, is off kilter, then everything else is off. So we must be rooted in the fact that Jesus is God, that he is God in the flesh, and that it is Jesus as the Christ who died in our place for our sins on Calvary. Now, why does that make so much, or why is there so much to be made about that? Because remember, the false teaching that was going around was that Jesus was a good man that who had inherited the spirit of Christ But that spirit of Christ departed him before death because God couldn't die. Now, the fault in that belief is that the spirit of Christ left. So again, that's simply a man dying for a bunch of people, right? But Jesus was the God-man. He was 100% God, 100% man. And so his death had to be fully effectual for it to cover the sins of 
the people. So he's saying, these are the people whom I love in truth. That is the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is God, that Jesus came, that Jesus died, and that Jesus very much rose Again, and he's saying it's because of this truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, we could have spent a lot of time in Second John. There is a lot of truth packed into these few verses. This truth that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the one who died in our place for our sins. And it's that this truth abides in us and will be with us forever. When we receive Christ as Savior, we have received Christ as Savior. There is no giving it back. There is no forfeiting that. Because the work of salvation is not of our own doing. It is the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and in love. John is writing to them as, their, as one of their pastors, and he loves them dearly, and he loves them in the truth. It is the truth that brings them together, the truth of Christ that holds them tightly. It's similar to what we see Paul write in Philippians 1. We talked about that on our eight-year service. In verses 7 and 8, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. That means they have all accepted the same truth. They are all working together for the glory of Christ as Christ's church. He says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is the love of Christ for his church for his people that holds them all together. And it's that love that propels these men to love the people that they have been set apart to shepherd. And that's what we find again in Second John. John is once again urging the church, not simply as individuals any longer, but the church cohesively to rest in the truth that they have heard from the beginning. He's reminding them that truth and love must never be separated. We hear of churches that hold fast to the truth and they love very little. And they have a reputation for being cold and not welcoming. That church is in fault. We hear churches who care very little of truth and love greatly. Likewise, that church is at fault. It's the church that holds tightly to the truth and love that honors Christ. So what we see then is that their commitment together for the truth magnifies their love for each other. It is them collectively hearing the truth of Christ, submitting to the truth of Christ, and loving through the truth of Christ that honors God. They work together because they have been all bought with a price. They are brought together by the work of God. They are simply, like one author says, a band of brothers. They have been bought together with the price of Christ's life. And it is their salvation that brings them all together. It's, I believe it was, um, oh man, his name left me. 
It says that the church is a, um, natural group, a group of natural enemies that are all hinging on the work of Christ together. We've all been brought together by the work of Christ. And John similarly is writing to this church that they are brought together by the truth of God. And that truth abides in them and will be with them forever. And so that's his greeting. It's a people he loves greatly and a people he wants to see continue on in the grace and knowledge of God. That they would be committed to the truth of Christ and that they would love greatly. And he goes on in the next section of verses and encourages them to walk in truth and love. Look at verse 4. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Remember the emphasis that John placed in 1 John on their need for love and obedience. That they would not simply love and disobey, but that they would love and obey, that those two are tightly joined together. That if we understand the love of the Father, and if we understand how much He has loved us despite us, right? Romans 5, 8, for God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. If we understand how much God has loved us despite who we are, despite our faults, despite our failures, then we understand how great the love of God truly is. And as we understand that, we don't want to walk in disobedience. We want to joyfully live and walk in obedience to Him. And so here, John is echoing what he wrote in 1 John, that they remember the importance of love and obedience, that they walk in the truth of God, and that they love greatly. And now he's doing it, that he's addressing them to do this as a congregation. And you see the joy in his heart. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. The good news of the gospel. Just as we were commanded by the Father. As we've mentioned several times, we naturally don't want to be commanded to do anything. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told how to live. But when we are redeemed by Christ, then our lives are radically different. We're no longer the same person. We're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away and the, the new has come. We have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. And we joyfully submit to the commands of God as we understand how great the salvation of God through Christ for us has been. But he rejoices in seeing them live in the truth. He rejoices that the truth matters to them. One of the marks, I believe, of a healthy church is a church that loves to know the Word of God. That doesn't want to push the Word of God aside, but longs to know the deep things of God. Ray Van Nest, in his commentary on this text, writes this. It says, not only does sharing in the truth cause Christians to love one another, it also grants them deep joy in one another's 
obedience. If we love the truth, we love people who believe that truth. And if we love truth, we love to see people live in accordance with that truth. I want to read that again. I want you to make sure you catch this. Not only does sharing in the truth cause Christians to love one another, it also grants them deep joy in one another's obedience. So we're finding joy as we are obedient to the commands and the leading of God. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes on, he says, If we love the truth, that is the truth of the gospel, that we have been redeemed only by the work of Christ, then we love people who believe that truth. And if we love truth, we love to see people live in accordance with that truth. So if the truth of God has truly and radically changed our lives, then our joy is found in serving Him, but then also seeing others serve Him as well. So, in other words, our churches are full of joy when we obediently pursue Christ together. That it's the love of Christ that has changed us and pushes us, propels us to love greatly as obedient children. So, John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth. In verse 5, he says, and now... I ask you, dear lady, your church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from from beginning, that we love one another. So walking in truth, then, is not some new commandment, but it's what we've known from the very beginning, that we love one another as we have been loved by God in Christ. So it is the love of God for us, Through His Son, that changes us radically. Again, D.A. Carson was the guy's name that I forgot earlier. I just remembered it. I knew it would come eventually. But he says that the church is simply a, a band of natural enemies brought together by the love of Christ. Our natures, you know, I mean, if we look at this room, we could scan the the room there are so many of us who have different personalities different careers different longings and hopes and dreams for life but what brings us together it's the love of God in Christ towards us and that's what John is saying to this church and that walking in this truth then the truth that God loves us despite us urges us to love each other It's a hard love at times, but it's a love that is filled with joy. If we're a part of a church and we don't love the people of the church, then are we truly a part of the church? And what I mean by that is not that we've simply filled out a card or pledged our allegiance to that group of people, but are we actually children of God if we can't love the people of God? We've seen that over the last several weeks, that those who have been loved by God love those who have also been loved by God. And so being a part of a church is so much more than Sunday morning. It's a deep love for each other. It's a deep love for those who have been redeemed just as we have been redeemed. It's a collection of lives changed by the grace of God. And notice it's a requirement. It's a commandment. 
not a suggestion. And there are times when we don't want to love. I understand that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we love because we have been loved. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We show grace because we've been extended grace. We're merciful because we've been shown mercy. We sacrifice because sacrifice has been made on our behalf. That's what the love of God in Christ does. It radically changes us. Again, we're no longer who we once were. And that is what John is encouraging them to remember. To remember that they have been loved greatly by the Father. And that they have been commanded then, as beloved children, to love in return. And goes on in verse 6. To further define that love. And this is love. That we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. His definition of love points back to God's love for us in Christ. And what I say about God's loving us in Christ is this, that God would come to us as the God-man Jesus. And that Jesus would sacrifice Himself, that He would lay Himself down for the good of others. That salvation can only come through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the God-man. And according to Isaiah, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That God would lay his own son down for the good of us all. That's love. And he says, it's this commandment, just as you have heard from beginning, that you should walk in it. We walk in the truth And we walk in the love, reflecting the love of Christ. As he submitted to the will of God, we then submit to the love he has shown to us. And also, it's not just about loving him, but it's also about loving one another. And our love for one another is a deep love. And it's not only that we would trust Christ, but it's that we would learn to walk in the love of God together. That our love for others is desiring them to walk in the same love of God that we experience. That we would encourage them to love the Lord. That we would encourage them to turn away from sin. That we would encourage them to see the error that may be in their ways. But... To do so, love must be the motivator, not legalism, not personal opinion, not control. It's love. Love based in Scripture, not love according to our own terms. And that's a big one, especially in our modern society. We all have opinions. We all have leans. We all have certain bents. And we want people to understand things the way we understand them. We want people to see things the way we see them. We want people to live according to our standards. That's not what this is referring to. We want people to live in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, and that can only be done with an understanding of Scripture. That can only be done with the Bible as the filter which everything else in our lives flows through. 
But we see that we are commanded, and John is reminding them, that we are to walk in both truth and love. That we hold fast to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is very much the God-man. That he has come to sacrifice himself for the good of others. And we have also been commanded to love just as he has loved us, that we lay ourselves down for the good of others. That we love even when it's difficult. That we love even when people hold different opinions. That we love even when somebody holds radically different lifestyle decisions. It's a command to joyfully surrender because we know that we have been greatly loved by the Father. See, love and obedience are connected. They can't be divorced because when they're divorced, then it's either radical love with no structure or it's legalism with no love. They're both vitally important. Now, what does that mean for Christians? See, the true Christian rejoices as brothers and sisters walk with us in obedience to our gracious Lord. That's why John in verse 4 says, I rejoice greatly. He rejoiced because he saw that the truth was being lived out in the people of God. Not flippantly, but in a real manner. And so the true Christian rejoices when we see our brothers and sisters walking together in obedience. Likewise, the true Christian breaks when our brothers and our sisters slip and fall. So then, it is true love... And Christian duty to call sin, sin. We made a reference last week to church discipline, how over the years it has become really a footnote that only occurs about every 100th page, right? But early on, it was a major mark in the church because it was done out of love for the good of the individual and for the good of the church. And if we understand truly the love of God displayed for us in Christ and we love the way that God has loved us, then this becomes a natural part of life. It's not obscure anymore that we can go to our brothers and sisters and encourage them to return back to the truth and the love that they had known at first. And when we do so, we understand that there's no greater love than doing that. Why? Because true love for the body is encouraging and wanting to see people walk together in obedience in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Matthew Henry says this, he says, It is a sign that our friends are faithful indeed, if in love to our souls they will not suffer sin upon us, nor let us alone in it. It's a show that someone has been truly redeemed when they want to see others walk in the goodness of Christ. And it's a pure act of love when someone who loves us comes alongside and encourages encourages us and does not want us to fall to the wayside. That's a show that Christ is truly present and at work. Now, In 2 John, we see John kind of turn his attention a little 
as he gives a final warning and a farewell to this church that he obviously loves dearly. Because verses 1 and through 6 have, have kind of led us to what really is the primary concern for this letter. All of the other things are a prerequisite to remind them how greatly he loves them so that he can give them this pretty stern warning. And so in verses 7 and 8 we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. He says, watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. See, the church in unity must press deeply into love and obedience in order to fight against many deceivers. Again, 1 John, he addressed the individuals, that they hold fast to the gospel truth, that they live their lives on guard as they remember the love and grace of God. And now he's turning the attention to the church as a whole, that they do so as a unified body, that they not allow each other to fall into the temptation of listening to false teachers, that they be on guard for one another, that they fight for the good of their brothers and sisters. It's a warning that they carefully watch out for each other. Again, that they would go to war. I had a conversation with somebody recently about church and how I believe that God is truly doing something amazing here. We a small church, yes. But there are a lot of churches that are a lot bigger than us that if you really looked at the core of it, their attendance might be greater, but they don't necessarily have as many faithful workers. Does that make sense? It doesn't matter if a church has 200 people. If they still only have 50 people who are doing everything, are they really any different than what God's doing here? And my conversation with the individual I was talking to was, you know, we're at a stage where we don't know what the future holds as far as building. We, we don't know if we're going to build a building or if we're going to move to another. We, we don't know, right? We know that we're not going to be here, but whatever the case may be, I feel pretty assured that it's not going to have a big effect on any of, any of our people. And, and what I'm getting to is my conversation with this individual is I basically feel like we have a small group of people, meaning our church as a whole, who are ready to go to war. They believe the truth of the gospel. They believe that what God has set us apart to do is going to have a lasting effect. And God has been so gracious in that. I would have never dreamed that God would have done what he has done eight years ago. My thought would have always been a larger church doing a lot of things, but to see what God has done instead has actually been much more rewarding. I made references early on that I would rather have a church full of 50 disciples than 500 jacklegs. That was the phrasing I used. God has done that. 
And I praise him for that. And what John is writing to these individuals as a church is much the same. That they walk together in unity. See, my role as a pastor is to shepherd, to feed you, to lead you, to protect you. But what is beautiful is that we understand here that it doesn't stop with the pastors. It's every member. It's every follower of Christ submitting to the will of God, submitting to the leading of the Lord, coming together arm in arm, working for one purpose, the glory of the name of Christ. That's discipleship. That we follow Christ together. That we lay ourselves down for the good of others. Now, has it been perfect? No. It never will be. Has it been easy? At times. But there have been plenty of seasons of of hardness. But the Lord is good through all of those. And in case you have missed me saying this lately, I've kind of been on this kick, just reflecting on what God is doing. It's a special place. The Lord is doing a mighty work here. Don't miss it. It goes on in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So you see this theme and this kind of warning in this, as he's ending this book. That we do these things together. That we are not simply on guard as individuals, but we watch out for the souls of our brothers and sisters as well. And we not fall prey to false teaching, that we protect each other. And he says, ultimately, that those who left were never truly of us, right? Everyone who goes on ahead of us and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We have a lot of people who will come and be a part and eventually will fade away. And that is usually a clear picture that Christ was never truly there. That's what Satan does is he deceives But as the body of Christ, we hold each other tightly. We press on for the good of one another. We're always called to be on duty as Christians abiding in the truth and love together. Because on in verse 10, I need to pick up my pace. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house Or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So what is he saying? What he's saying basically is this. That Christians should be warned to not entertain false teachers. There's a fine line here, right? To where we can hold fast to the teachings of Scripture And become so overly dogmatic that we never associate with other believers. And then there 
The other side of that is that we hold tightly to our convictions and we're just not simply going to entertain other things that may pull us astray. The purpose of the church, one of the purposes of the church, is to protect each other in that. To walk collectively. That, that's why from day one our emphasis has been on the Word of God. What does the Word of God teach? What does the Word of God want us to be? Who does it want us to be? What does it command us to look like as the people of God? See, false teachers are simply tools of Satan, and, and we know that Satan will stop at nothing to deceive. So we must be on guard for one another. We must fight for one another. Souls are at stake. Eternity is in the balance. So as the people of God, we must persevere. That is... Much of what John said at the beginning of 1 John, to have a joy-filled life is a life standing on the promise that Jesus is truly God in the flesh. And that even though false teachers and other things may come about, we hold tightly to the truth that we have known from the beginning. And we do so as one. We fight for the souls of our brothers and sisters. We, according to Jude 23, are not afraid to stick our hands down into the flames, snatching one another from the flames of fire. That's a paraphrase. We're not afraid to be burned for the good of others. We're willing to run into those burning situations to sacrifice ourselves so that others may live. And that's the warning. That they remember that they're not simply saved to be individuals, but they're, just, they're saved to be the church of Christ. And that that becomes much of their life's aim. Together. And John closes with this. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. I love this line. So that our joy may be complete. And the children of your elect sister greet you. So John's farewell is again reminding them of his deep love for them. It's kind of difficult to understand sometimes a pastor's heart for his people. I think you see evidences of this in different things. Someone was to command a troop of soldiers going into a pretty hairy situation. There's a bond that Sometimes it's hard to understand. You, you see this with veterans sometimes, right? That those men kind of become sometimes more of a family than their other family. And when the troubles of war begin to overtake them, they, they run back to those people who have walked that path, who have fought that fight together. I couldn't imagine not doing life together with you. It's similar for 
spouses and parents as well, right? If uh, I go on a trip, I can FaceTime Allison and my girls, but it's no substitute for being in their presence, right? I mean, it, it helps pass that time. It helps alleviate some of that pressure, but there's nothing like being in presence with them. That's the beauty of the church. The church has its full effect when we walk together in joyful obedience as one. And so I would want you to understand that I I somewhat echo John's heart here. That I love you more than you'll ever know. And I want nothing more than to see you rooted in the truth and walking in love and obedience as a unified body. That's one of the kickers. We move as one. We go to war together. We're one cohesive unit, living for the glory of God, by the grace of God, for the good of others. And at the end of the day, folks, that should be all of our desire. That we would desire that for each other. That we would be one church living for the glory of God. That's what it looks like to be a church member. I have people ask me why we put such a heavy emphasis on church membership. This is why. You don't want to go to war with people you don't know. You don't want to go to war with people who think differently. You don't want to go to war with people who don't hold the same convictions. You go to war with people who know they have been bought with a price and have been set apart for the glory of God and the good of others. Church membership is vitally important because we love each other greatly. It's not about being a part of an organization so we can check a box on a resume. It's not about coming into fellowship with others so that we can say that we're in fellowship with others. No, we walk in a manner collectively as we see at the end of verse 12 so that our joy may be complete. And John is writing this, he says, to the children of your elect sister greet you. So he's writing from one church to another church that he longs to be with. He can't wait to visit them and, and see them face to face. See, the Christian's purpose is to glorify God in all things. So as church members, we do that, that is glorify God in all things, by holding fast to the truth, walking in love and obedience, and daily laying down ourselves as we fight for the souls of our faith family. When's the last time you were burdened for your brothers or sisters in Christ? When's the last time you wept because someone you loved dearly wasn't walking for the joy of the Lord? You see... My hope, my desire, is that we understand that church is so much more than 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. It is. Now, the 90 minutes we have together on Sunday morning are wonderful. And it's a time that we can see each other and, and just enjoy one another as we worship God together. But the Christian life, as members of a church... It's a beautiful life. 
It's a challenging life. It's a sacrificial life. But it's a joy-filled life and journey together in Christ. So I pray that you've been encouraged by 2 John as we see the warnings to walk cohesively together, but that we bask in the glories of God, remembering His goodness and remembering His grace that has been extended to us. And I pray maybe that we've been challenged to fully rest in the truth of who He is. Let's pray together. Our Father, We give thanks for the work that you have done at New City Church. And we glory in who you are. And we rejoice greatly at the work you are doing. I pray now, God, that we would understand our place as your people. That we would walk together in unity. for the glory of your name, being led by your grace, filled with your spirit, for the good of others. In Christ, most holy and righteous name we pray. Amen.